Mary Lee and I are happy to be home again, and uh, we had a wonderful time at Mary Lee's parents' family reunion, where now grandchildren are giving way to great-grandchildren, and uh, the grandchildren are propagating a seed. We trust it's godly, and uh, I think there were something like 75 people there. So this year, for the first time ever, instead of individual couples taking care of the food, it was uh, catered for the evening meal under a tent. So uh, if someday there's a state of the United States named Taylor, you will have been in on the beginning of it. Um, Then we went up to the Boundary Waters and had a week canoeing with Robert Woodyard. Some of you were on a men's retreat where Pastor Woodyard spoke a few years ago. And uh, we had a wonderful time up there, perfect weather, but we're very happy to be home and uh, to see you and to be able to worship with you. I want you to turn this morning to the book of Galatians again. We last studied it at the end of the month of May, and... We return to it this week, Galatians, this week, chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. Uh, This is our 19th in a series of sermons on this New Testament book of Galatians. And I'm going to do something a little different this week. Uh, Some of you might be uh, somewhat impatient with this, but I plead with you to be patient with it. Uh, Twice in this last week in my uh, teaching or meeting with and talking with people who are a part of this fellowship... Um, there has been a discussion about the study of Scripture. Uh, once at our Wednesday morning group, when Nick led us in the study of Scripture in First Timothy, and another time in a private meeting I had with a gentleman. And so this morning I want us to stop looking at the themes of the book of Galatians and for a second look at the way that Paul makes his argument. Now, I have done this frequently in the first two chapters, pointing out that the way Paul makes his argument is quite intense, because we live in a feminine culture, a culture that is very much oriented towards the soft side of life. And consequently, it's important that we stop and recognize that when Paul wrote and he said intense things, he was not in sin. Now, that might seem obvious to you. You might think, well, of course he's not in sin. It's the Bible, for heaven's sakes. But as soon as you say that, you might also condemn him. Uh, My brother on his blog this last week was talking about a time when he took Martin Luther quotes and Calvin quotes and other quotes from the time of the Reformation and put them up on a website connected with an organization that he was working for at the time. And the president of the organization came to him and said, pull those quotes off the web page. And my brother said, well, why? And this president said, well, because those quotes are not honoring to God. And my brother said, why? And he said, well, because they're, they're intemperate. And uh, my brother said, well, you mean to tell me that you think that the reformers were sinning in the things that they said? And the man, without missing a beat, said, yes. Well, you wouldn't be so bodacious as to say that about the book of Galatians because it's a part of Scripture. You can be more free in condemning the reformers, Right. But what about the book of Galatians? I want us to stop regularly and look not just at the argument of Galatians, but I want us to look at the way the argument is made. Because the way the argument is made 
has something to teach us. Now, this morning I want us to read Galatians chapter 3, 6 to 9. But before I read 6 to 9, I want to set the context. You remember in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 3, which we studied a long time ago, Paul said this. He said, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And here we have the crux of the debate, of the argument, of the controversy, of the conflict. All those nasty words we try to ever say in American life today. Here we have the battle. All right? And the battle is between those who say that we receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law and faith and those who say that we receive the Holy Spirit by faith alone. And so Paul is saying, what's your experience, Galatians? Is your experience that you receive the Holy Spirit because you did good things and believed God or because you believe God? All right. Are you so foolish, he goes on in verse 3, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun with belief, are you now being perfected by works? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does, it, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So in the first five verses, the Apostle Paul has argued what? He's argued from experience. He's spoken to the Galatians and said, remember when you first came to the Lord. Did you come because your works of the law were found pleasing by God and so God gave you new birth? God gave you the ability to be born again as a reward of your works. Is that how you came to Christ? Is that what happened? And Paul was there, so he knows. He's not asking a question he doesn't know the answer to. All right. Now, with verse 6, he moves on. He starts verses 1 to 5 with an argument from experience. But then, verse 6, what does he do? Well, verse 6 begins a whole section of the book of Galatians where Paul changes for, from an argument from experience to what? to an argument from Scripture. All right? And so it's fitting at this time, again, that we stop and that we examine the nature of his argument. The whole rest of the book will be making a case from Scripture. And obviously, he can't cite the New Testament, right? So he has to cite the Old Testament. And so what we see is the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, showing us how the Holy Spirit interprets the Holy Spirit. In other words, here we have a case of divine exegesis and hermeneutics. Now, what's exegesis and hermeneutics? It's a fancy word for, here we have a divine case of holy Bible study. And what we see here should tell us how to study Scripture. Now, I'll get into that again, but let's read verses 6 to 9, where we move from the argument from experience into the argument from Scripture. This is the Word of God, eternally true, Galatians 3, 6 to 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is the thesis of the book of Galatians. Again and again, you're going to get pushed back to Abraham, back to Abraham, back to Abraham. 
Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. All right. Now, again, according to the Apostle Paul, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And if anyone were inclined to disagree with this statement, they would be reminded that this statement was not original with the Apostle Paul, but rather, in writing this, Paul was quoting directly from the Old Testament, specifically the first book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, which reads, in Genesis 15, we read, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram had said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, God to Abram, so shall your descendants be. And then he, Abram, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. If you look at your Bibles, if you have an NASB or some other version, you'll note that there's some textual indication, some font application, something done graphically to indicate that that statement, Abram believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, is a quote from the Old Testament. Okay? If you are a student of Scripture, you didn't need that font indication to you because you already knew it. You already knew that that's what the Bible said about Abram. Okay? So, here's the question. As Paul moves from arguments from experience in favor of justification by faith alone into arguments from Scripture in favor of justification by faith alone, is the Apostle Paul fair? Is he scientific? <laughs> okay. Is he mathematical? Is he precise? Is he accurate? Is he correct? Is he a good student of Scripture? Now, again, you all say, well, of course, it's Scripture, so what he does is right. But don't, don't answer so cheaply. Don't answer so cheaply. Many of us are very fond of saying that we believe in, all right, are you ready? That we believe in the, come on, feel it, brothers and sisters. We believe in the inspiration, but that's not good enough. The, the inerrancy, but that's not good enough. The infallibility, but even that isn't good enough. The literal <laughs> interpretation of Scripture. You've heard that, right? I believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. Okay, so what we're dealing with here is the question, when the Apostle Paul goes back and starts opening up a case for justification by faith alone from the Old Testament, 
And the Apostle Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what he does is write. And when he goes back into the Old Testament and shows us what it's saying, okay, is the Apostle Paul demonstrating a literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, I'm going to cut to the chase, and I'm going to tell you, no, he is not. Now, I hope that makes you uncomfortable. Because all of a sudden, no longer do we have an easy understanding of the Bible, do we? No longer can we say that we're better than liberals because we believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. All right? No longer can we say that if you will go to an evangelical seminary where members of the Evangelical Theological Society teach and you will inherit from them or imbibe from them or learn from them the, the, the historical grammatical method of the exegesis of Scripture. If you will read Doug Stewart and Gordon Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, all right, then you will... Learn the disciplines that are necessary to do proper biblical exegesis and hermeneutics. And you will use the words hermeneutics and exegesis, and it will be a signal to everybody that you're not dumb. And that you know the limits of Bible study. And when you're in a Bible study, you'll be very careful to nip things in the bud. You know, if somebody goes off on some allegorical or typological or flight of fancy or some mystical, you know, sort of thing, you, you'll say, hey, wait a second, you know, the Bible is clear that, and, and, and all scholars today agree, that we ought never to see in the text of Scripture anything that wasn't in the mind of the original human author when he wrote it. Because why? Because we believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. Now, come on, be, stay with me. The Apostle Paul doesn't have something to teach us in the book of Galatians, simply justification by faith alone, but the way he teaches it is important. And when we go into chapter 4, all of this now is the interpretation of Scripture. We've left the arguments of experience. We're in the interpretation of Scripture. We get into chapter 4, and you begin to see how he handles the story of Isaac and Ishmael. I hope you're deeply uncomfortable if you're one of those who likes to say, I believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. Because when we get into his use of Ishmael and Isaac, it gets pretty dicey. Now, some of you are impatient at this point because you look at Scripture and God's truth and spiritual things, religious things, as being the only thing in life that should yield itself to soft work. In other words, when it comes to income taxes, you should study the whole tax code and have an accountant and, and have H&R Block help you. But when it comes to Scripture, God should reward the slightest effort. You know, eating from Scripture should be like going to the drinking fountain in the back of the room. You see the fountain, you have a hope, you go up, you press a button, you lean over, and that's about all it takes. I mean, you do have to have... The, the, the ability to, to suck water in as opposed to pouring it down, right? And for some of you, that's a sophisticated thing. But most of us remember it from being babies, right? Okay? And that's all that it takes. And we think that God giving a spiritual truth should be like that. We think that we should be able to go over to the fountain, lean over, and 
simply bring it in. It should be clear. It should be clean. It should have no harmful effects on our body. And God should feed us in the same way. In other words, many of us believe that if God were fair, the slightest effort would yield unbelievably eternal results when it comes to spiritual feeding. Many of us believe that God, if he were fair, if he were good, would spoon feed us. And so we approach Scripture with an attitude that, again, I believe in the literal interpretation of Scripture. I believe that even a tiny child ought to be able to go to Scripture and simply open up his or her mouth and, 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 and drink in the good things of God. Now, there is a sense in which this is true, that we as Protestants believe in the, it's a, it's a long word, but it's a good one, the perspicuity of Scripture. We believe that you ought not to have to have a Ph.D. in order to understand the things that are necessary to live a life that pleases God. All right? But nowhere in Scripture does it teach us that it's proper to come to God and demand that he spoon-feed us. Because we believe in justification by faith alone does not mean that we believe in justification by faith itself. All right? In other words... Justification by faith gives issue to works. They don't save us, but they inevitably come as the fruit of the work that God has done, past tense. And work is needed when it comes to Scripture. Think about this. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians to the Galatian church, what was at stake? What was at stake was whether or not they were saved by works and Jesus or by Jesus alone. All right. Now, how did the Apostle Paul convince them of the true doctrine of salvation? The Apostle Paul convinced them by writing them a letter. So, A, they had to read. This is why in colonial times in America, there was the greatest literacy rate of any time in history. Every single parent wanted their children to grow up able to read Scripture. If the people in Galatia couldn't read, couldn't listen... All right? They couldn't understand the argument. Their salvation could not be based on the proper doctrine. Galatians is a doctrinal book. And so Christians have always been the leading edge of the literacy movement. Well, apparently, if you're following what I'm arguing, it wasn't sufficient for them to be able to read. They also had to know Scripture. Paul's arguments in the New Testament are based upon the arguments of the Old Testament. So they had to know the Old Testament. They had to know who Ishmael was. They had to know who Isaac was. So apparently it wasn't sufficient for their parents to tell them that the rabbi was in possession of a holy book and that the rabbi every Sunday would give them from it or Saturday. All right. Apparently the children were raised to know who Ishmael and Isaac were. All right. Now, apparently it wasn't sufficient that they would know how to read. It wasn't sufficient that they would know that in the book was a story of Ishmael and Isaac. Apparently, they also had to be careful to be capable of thinking logically. They had to know that when the Apostle Paul was saying, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that the Apostle Paul was saying, look, here you guys are, the church in Galatia, and you got all these Judaizers, these Jews up from Jerusalem, arguing that you're not good enough because you haven't been circumcised. You're Gentiles. You haven't been circumcised. Okay, look, if they claim that true children of Abraham are those who are circumcised, here's my argument. 
Uh, how come it is that Abraham was justified not by circumcision? You go to the book of Romans and what does he argue? He argues that God blessed Abraham before he was circumcised. Okay, now watch. They know how to read. They know the story of Isaac and Ishmael. They know the story of Abraham and circumcision. And now they have to be able to think through whether or not it's true what Paul says. That Abraham was blessed by God, that he was found righteous before he obeyed and had himself and all his household circumcised. Now, at this point, are you getting tired? If you're getting tired, do you get tired on April 14th when you start to fill out your income tax forms? No, because the motivation there is saving money from Uncle Sam. Do you get tired when you start reading the specs on the steel you use? Okay? Do you get tired when you open up your mathematics textbooks? Do you get tired when you study rotten, ugly teeth on a video screen? See, when it comes to our businesses, things that really matter, all of a sudden, would you believe it? We become disciplined. We, we are capable of logic. We don't look at it as a drinking fountain where we just have to open our mouths and suck in. But when it comes to spiritual things, slothfulness, we get lazy. And we think, oh man, come on, God, I spend the rest of my week studying and thinking and working. Can't religion be something easier than that? Can't you just feed me? Here I am, your lamb. I have had, every week it seems, Saturdays get harder and harder for me. And maybe I'd learn that I shouldn't write my sermons on, or, wait, did I say Friday? I meant Saturday. Okay, I said Saturday. And, and Saturdays get harder for me, especially Saturday night. And it's always guilt, all right? It's always, as I get older, this, this, this tsunami, <laughs> this hurricane, this tidal wave of awareness of my failures and my sin. All right? This particular week is John Crumb's last week with us. He's going to Covenant College. And John lived in our home. So what did Satan hit me with? And he was right in what he hit me with. What did he hit me with last night? But I'm up in my room trying to write my sermon. And I'm aware of all the weeks, indeed years, that I have had to teach John. And I have done an absolutely pathetic job. And don't think this is a joke. It isn't. When you get older and you have kids you love and you see them leave your home and you realize, <laughs> Jay, eh? All our best works are rags. And so you think about the issue, particularly of a young man who's going out into the world, and one day, Lord willing, will have a wife and children, and one day, Lord willing, may be an elder of the church. And you think, what have I taught him? You know, how have I prepared him to stand against all the false doctrine that he's going to have force-fed as he goes off? How have I, how have I prepared him to live a godly life? And you realize that it's not just a question of us being lazy ourselves in our study, but we've had lazy teachers. We have had preachers and Sunday school teachers and fathers who have betrayed their trust 
and who have taught us that eating from God's Word ought to be like going to a bubbler, where you just open your mouth and pure things come in, and, and, and that's all it takes spiritually. And the same fathers have taken us week after week after week to soccer games, to soccer clinics, to soccer schools, and have paid people to carefully teach us the principles, have gone to the library and, and, and checked out videos on soccer, have watched the women's soccer team playing in the Olympics with us. You see, it's not that we as mothers and fathers don't believe in careful instruction and logic and discipline. It's just that we never believe in it when it comes to the things of God. We would never dream of having a Sunday school teacher in this school, this church who would give exams, let alone a failing grade to our children. We talk about grade inflation. Let me tell you, Harvard has nothing on the church of Jesus Christ. Our children come into our elders at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or 15 or 16, and they confess their faith in the most basic, simple, bubbler, drinking fountain Knowledge of God's Word is sufficient, and the elders are proud that the parents have done such a good job, and they're welcomed into church membership, and, and nobody ever rebukes a father for failing to teach his children. Not in this church, and not in any church in the country. Come on, you guys, say, give me an amen. I mean, it's true. Come on, Jeff, give me an Amen. All right, all right. <laughs> and so when I say that I feel my failure with my son, Jonathan, and don't worry, David is not jealous, his father. Uh, I'm not being sentimental. It, it is a true confession of sin. And so I ask you, go to the book of Galatians. And I ask you, look at it. This is an argument it is an argument that you must read. It is an argument that you must study. It is an argument that is based upon your knowledge of Scripture. It is an argument that eternal things hang in the balance of, namely whether we are saved by works and belief or by belief alone in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's eternally important. So how are you prepared to study this book? How much effort do you want to give your study of this book? How much confidence do you have that the argument that's made in this text is, word for word, the direct fruit of the Holy Spirit working through a particular man, and that you can base your life and eternity on it? How much confidence do you have in that? Brothers and sisters, we are lazy. I hope I've made my case. I am lazy, you are lazy. Now, that's not the only problem. We're all so proud. About the time laziness starts backing off, and we are convinced that application is important, not just to the tax codes and to the specks on our steel and to teeth, but it's also important for our souls. About that time, pride comes in. And we say, you know, I'll be hanged if I'm going to sit under anybody else to learn when it comes to spiritual things. God shouldn't work that way. God ought to work with me directly. I'm that important. And so we travel to Washington to the Internal Revenue Service and ask for an appointment with the top dog. 
We say, you know, I know you have websites and I know you have books and I know there are attorneys and accountants and H&R Block who are prepared to explain to me, but I'm a tax player and I pay you and I expect you to give me personal time. Well, we wouldn't dream of doing that with the IRS, but we do it with God. We say to God, God, I don't want anybody to mediate your truth to me. It's just me and the Bible in a closet. You know? And God... If you want me, that's how you're going to get me. None of this pastoral counseling, none of this sitting in sermons with an open mouth, you know? That's humiliating. You ever see those little birds? They're in a nest. They're all, ah, you know? Not for me. I mean, maybe my kids, you know, but kids aren't aware of how stupid they look. Right? Now, I want... I want your time. And doesn't the Bible say that they won't have anyone need of anyone to teach them because the Holy Spirit will be to their teacher? You see? See? Good Scriptures to use. About the time we are admitting that we're lazy, we then demand that our pride be maintained in the issue of who teaches us. And maybe we'll listen to R.C. Sproul videos and go to Ligonier conferences, but I'll be hanged if I'm going to submit to such a sinner as Tim Bailey. I mean, that guy is a turkey. Have you seen him be rude to people? Boy, I miss Rob. You know? Now, Rob, he was a gentleman. He was Southern. And what about the elders board? I mean, I can see how you need rich men to be on the elders board, but I don't need them to teach me. And and what about our husbands? Go home and ask your husband, yeah, right, the turkey. I'm going to ask my husband. I'll ask him for money. That's about all I'll ask him for. And parents, Sunday school teachers, my Sunday school teacher, you hear what people say about the way he sells real estate? We have no need of anyone to be our teacher. We have the Holy Spirit, right? You know that if that's your attitude today, there is absolutely no reason why you wouldn't have had that attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here on earth. People didn't run around saying, this is God, listen to him. It happened once at the very beginning, and nobody believed John the Baptist. So... We repent of sloth, and then pride comes in, and I fear that most of us die with pride ruling us. Do you understand? We do not like to be taught, particularly spiritual things. So I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to finish this sermon. Um, brothers and sisters, I, I'm going to come back to this. I'm sorry about this, but um, I believe that if you are really going to come to understand the argument for salvation by grace alone and not by works... It is not sufficient for you to pass over the way that that argument is made. And the next time we return to our study of Galatians, I'm going to focus on 
this method, and I'm going to show you that in a number of New Testament passages, there is absolutely no way that anybody, okay, that anybody listening to the Old Testament prophet when he wrote could ever have dreamed the way that that text that he wrote would be used by a New Testament author later. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to try to show you that the authors of the Old Testament many, many times could not possibly have dreamed of how what they wrote was going to be used by Jesus, by the Apostle Paul, and on and on and on. And yet, I'm going to make the case that if you and if the disciples at the time of Jesus failed to understand the Old Testament properly, particularly at those points where nobody would ever have dreamed what was being said at the time it was originally written, that Jesus himself faults them for not understanding Scripture properly. In other words, I'm going to make the case that... Scripture's plain, literal sense at the time it was originally written is not sufficient in text after text, but you must have a spiritual understanding of the text that goes beyond that plain sense. Now, this is a dicey argument to make, because what it's going to say is it's not enough for you to agree to work hard at studying Scripture, all right, you you must also give up any hope of having a scientific method of studying Scripture that will be safe. Because a scientific method of studying Scripture that purports to be literal, all right, and that you feel safe applying because you know you can't get into dangerous waters, is a, a method of studying Scripture that completely fails to welcome the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not limited by scientific methods. Now, let me say beforehand, I am not going to say that none of you ever have to worry about submitting to any discipline, that none of you ever have to worry about asking yourself, is this the literal meaning of the text? That none of you ever have to worry about asking, well, what did Isaiah mean at the time when he, when he wrote his prophetic word about, behold, a virgin shall conceive? I'm not saying it doesn't matter what the human author meant when they wrote the original text. But if you're going to accept the Apostle Paul's argument about Ishmael and Isaac and in various other texts in the book of Galatians, you are going to have to see that when the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians about what Moses meant in the Pentateuch, as we're starting in now, you have to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Or another way of saying it is you have to believe that there is one author of all of Scripture and it is to that author that you must make your appeal today so that you will be strengthened for salvation. And that author is not the Apostle Paul and it is not Moses, but the author is the Holy Spirit. Okay? The author is the Holy Spirit. Let me close with a text from the great foolishness book of the Bible, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 14. 
Now, we have received not the spirit of the world. Let me, let, let me paraphrase it. Not the spirit of the academy. Not the spirit of the professoriate. Not the spirit of higher education. All right. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom. We don't know these things by words that are taught by the academy, by the professoriate, by higher education. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You know, I made the point about Christians always leading the movements to literacy. And, you know, think about it. The beginning of the Gospel of John says this. It says, in the beginning was the sound, the beauty, the art, the picture, the movie, Mel Gibson. All right. It doesn't say that. It says, in the beginning was the word. And as a Christian, you need to understand that at the beginning of the book of Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But there's a little Hebrew word in there that's not translated. All right? And without going into it, if you look at that Hebrew word and you look at John 1, what you're being told both in Genesis 1 and in John 1 is that God created through the Word, and the Word is Jesus Christ. Words are important. Words mean things. Christians have a high view of words, not a low view. Christians are not people of the emotion and the sentiment and the cheap picture. All right? Christians believe that God was pleased to speak, and it became so. And he said, let there be light, and there was light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.